You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 20 is where we return this evening. Matthew chapter 20. We come to the 20th verse. We will read down to verse 28. Matthew chapter 20 beginning at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left, But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's ask the Lord's help as we come to our time in his word. Father in heaven, thank you. This opportunity we have twice each week gather around the Holy Scriptures and to receive from Your hand. Thank You, Lord, that this is our food. Thank You that this is our light, our lamp. This is how we know where to walk. This is how we've come to know who You are and who our Savior is. This is how You saved us, by bringing Your Word to us in the form of the Gospel, granting us repentance and faith to receive it. This is how you grow us. This is how we're sanctified. Even as our Savior prayed for us, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. This is how you're conforming us to the image of Jesus. We give you praise, thanks for the ministry of the Word of God, and we ask your blessing upon it in this next hour. We always recognize, Lord, there'll be some who hear me who don't know you. Would you have mercy upon them? Even this night, would you regenerate? Would you grant life where there's death and sight where there's blindness and freedom where there's bondage? Lord, would your glory in the form of your saving mercy be on display even this night in the salvation of souls? But Lord, we come to you as your church and we need this hour. And so we ask your blessing. We'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Which of the disciples comes to your mind... If I were to talk about someone who is characterized by bold, 
brash, prideful statement. If I asked, who speaks out of turn? Who sometimes says outrageous things? Who comes to your mind? If you say James and John, you're right. Is that who came to your mind? Who comes to your mind? Peter. But tonight we're going to see it's not just Peter who sometimes needs correction in terms of his perspective. It's not just Peter who can be guilty of selfish ambition. James and John also. It's the other disciples. All of them. All 12 of them on this occasion. And it's not just the disciples that we see on the pages of Scripture. It's also the disciples sitting right now in this room. Pride. Not something to be taken lightly. It's a serious, serious sin. Sometimes it requires loving confrontation. Because we love each other, we can't just allow pride to go unaddressed. But if you think the problem is just found in some of us, you're going to make a major mistake because every one of us has to battle with pride. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I've made my heart pure? I'm clean from my sin. You ever met someone who is on the pride police force? Identifying everyone else's pride? Can I just exhort us all tonight, if that's us, let's get off the force and hire someone to investigate us. Because it's in all of us. What makes this battle especially difficult is when you're living in perilous times. All times are sinful times. There's never been a time since the fall that this world has not been sinful, but the Bible acknowledges that there will be some times more notorious than others. In fact, we're taught to be prepared for it. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, but understand this, that in the last days, and of course, as you know, the last days began with the first advent of Jesus, continues until the second advent. We are living right now in the last days, and it says, Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, it's amazing, as I thought about that section this week, it's amazing to me how, as Paul warns us, warns the church, that there will be these notorious times along the way during the last days. Sometimes will be worse than others. As he warns us about that, it's amazing to me how many of the terms that he uses to describe such a time are terms describing pride. Lovers of self. What is that if it's not pride? Then he just says it, proud. He says arrogant, abusive. What is it if I feel free to abuse you 
but that I think I'm more important than you. So where you find abusive people, you find proud people. Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful. Grateful people are humble people. Proud people always think they deserve what they have or they deserve better than they have. So ungrateful people are proud people. Unappeasable. What does that mean? It means it's hard to get along with you because it's hard to make things right with you. Someone wants to make it right. Someone wants to have reconciliation. But you, you make it hard for that to happen. Why? Because you are now wounded. Slanderous. Gossips and slanderers are proud people. Psalm 12 verse 3 says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. And listen how the verse ends. Who is master over us? If you feel that you're free to just to say whatever you want to say, then who is your master? Brutal. When people are hard-hearted, when they don't feel their wounding of another person, when there's a brutality about you, there's a hard-heartedness. And that is where pride is residing. And then he uses this description, swollen with conceit. That's an image, isn't it? Puffed up, swollen with a sense of yourself. A difficult time, what is it? It's an arrogant time. And when you're living in a time like that, then even believers, if you're not careful, you can become somewhat numb to the pride that's all around you. It's like the frog being boiled in the kettle slowly. You don't recognize how much pride there is in your own life because you're surrounded by a culture that's arrogant. In fact, sometimes what happens, even in the realm of the church, is we attempt to take the proud self-reliant, self-exalting ways of the world and baptize it. Have our own version of it. Make it work in the name of the Lord. Worldly principles trying to accomplish spiritual ends. I hope you know that's impossible. You can't take what is worldly and baptize it and then make it spiritual. John MacArthur said this, it is impossible for the principles of the world to be effective in or adaptable to God's kingdom. By their very nature, they are contrary to His way and destructive of His work. They not only never produce greatness, but always produce disharmony, pettiness, and spiritual weakness in the body. Read the book of James. One of the ways you know worldly wisdom is that it leads to all sorts of chaos. Well, what we have in our verses tonight is a great example of this. We saw this morning, it's not just discipleship training Jesus is doing as He has this conversation on the road to Jerusalem. It is leadership training. He has taken the twelve aside, telling them in advance what is going to happen so as to prepare them. And one of the ways He wants them prepared is to understand the example they have in Him. He's going to lay his life down to save them. You want to know about greatness? You want to know about greatness in the kingdom? Look at your Lord. 
And yet the Spirit of God through Matthew, and Mark also records this incident, preserves for us the evidence that they didn't understand. They still don't get it. We'll see how Jesus corrects them yet again in these verses. We're going to look at this tonight under four headings. Number one, a desire for kingdom prominence. A desire for kingdom prominence. Number two, a correction for ignorant confidence. A correction for ignorant confidence. Third, judgment from indignant competitors. And then finally, the pathway for true greatness. A desire for kingdom prominence, a correction for ignorant confidence, judgment from indignant competitors, and then finally, the pathway for true greatness. First of all, notice with me, a desire for kingdom prominence, verses 20 and 21. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Of course, the places of honor, of highest honor in the kingdom. Is this not an outrageous scene? I mean, you have two grown men who are with Jesus every day. This was a conversation that could have been had at any time. But they come to him now making use of their mother to give voice to what it is they desire. One of the things you see both in Matthew and Mark, this is crystal clear. James and John are the driving force behind what's happening here. They're using their mother. But this is about their desire. In fact, it's interesting, Mark doesn't even mention their mother. Mark 10.35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So Mark's account doesn't even mention their mother. And here, though we are told their mother was there, You'll notice in verse 24 that when the other disciples see this and are put off by this, who are they upset with? They're not upset with mom. They're upset with the two men. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. So it's these two men making use of their mother. Now, why would they do this? Why would they do this? I can think of two reasons. One, it could be that their mother insisted that her sons ask for this. We all know moms, don't we? And they sometimes can prevail upon their sons. My two boys, the most wonderful, the smartest, the most useful, the most faithful, the most loyal. If you don't show initiative, you might be left out. <laughs> you need to go. You need to talk to him. Maybe that's how it happened. Or maybe this originated with James and John because they thought she might have some influence on Jesus. Now, why would she have influence on Jesus? Well, here's what's interesting. If you read Matthew 27, 55 and 56, if you read Mark 15, verse 40, and if you read John 19, verses 24 and 25, and you compare those three texts, what you're going to find is 
it's very likely that their mother is Salome, and that Salome is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which would make their mother Jesus's aunt. Good southern way of saying that, right? Not aunt, aunt, right? Aunt Salome is coming to Jesus to have this conversation. This would make James and John the first cousins of Jesus on their mother's side. So that what this represents is not only their desire for prominence, but an attempt to gain that prominence through a kind of manipulation. Maybe if mom goes, it will strengthen our hand. But there's even more that would indicate they have fallen prey to a bit of manipulation here. Mark tells us that they began the conversation with a request for blanket approval. Mark 10.35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Here's what happens. Just give us what we ask for. Now, every parent recognizes that, right? At some point, your child will come up to you and say, Mom and Dad, just say yes. Just say yes. What am I saying yes to? Just say yes. Indicating, of course, they know there's a high probability that the answer they're going to get is no. So they come to Jesus understanding, maybe at some level, He's not going to fulfill their request because what they want is blanket approval before they even tell Him what they want. Matthew tells us they bowed down before Him. Verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down, making a request of him. Maybe this is sincere. There's no doubt they love the Lord Jesus and honor him as their Lord and honor him as the Messiah. No doubt about that. But you do wonder, is this a way of paying tribute meant to influence his decision? A desire for prominence. This is what they want the highest places when the time comes that He is seated in His glory. And it seems clear they're willing to engage in a kind of manipulation to achieve their ends. Now before we cast too much scorn upon these two men, shouldn't we ask whether sometimes we fall prey to the same errors? Leadership responsibility has been entrusted by God in several different spheres and realms. What characterizes your leadership? What characterizes your desire for leadership? That's what they want. It's a desire for prominence. Leadership. Is your leadership one that depends on manipulation? Can you be honest with your own heart about this? This, this, this will do us no good to look at a text like this if we're not willing to be honest with ourselves? Are we characterized by transparency and straightforwardness and sincerity and genuineness of motive? Or do we manipulate? Leadership characterized by feigned appreciation or feigned respect. One of the things that characterizes false teachers, for example, is they are flatterers. And how many people in this world of ours seek to climb the ladder 
through flattery or seek to influence someone through flattery. You say positive things not because you mean it. You say positive things not because it's genuine, but because you think it will get you what you want. It's manipulation by means of hypocrisy. Leadership trying to leverage relationships. That's what they're doing here, trying to leverage their relationship with Jesus in all likelihood based upon their mothers. Doesn't this characterize the world we're living in? Who do you know? It's all about who you know. Who can pull some strings for you? Who can get you an entrance somewhere? Who will take your side? Who will take up your case? John Piper had an insightful comment. He said, today... The first and greatest commandment is, thou shalt love thyself. Talking about this time we're living in. Thou shalt love thyself. And the explanation for almost every interpersonal problem is thought to lie in someone's low self-esteem. Sermons, articles, and books have pushed this idea into the Christian mind. It is a rare congregation, for example, that does not stumble over the vernacular theology sorry, vermicular theology of Isaac Watts, alas, and did my Savior bleed. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? How many congregations stumble over the thought that we're just a bunch of worms from the standpoint of what we deserve spiritually? So, a desire for prominence. The other disciples obviously think this is a power play. They're upset by it. Hearing this, the ten became indignant. That particular word indicates a kind of anger with a sense of righteousness behind it. This is wrong. Second point tonight, a correction for ignorant confidence. Verse 22, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. One of the things that stands out to me as I look at those two verses is the kind of example Jesus is as our leader because He displays an amazing patience. He also displays an amazing gentleness. He corrects the disciples, but the correction is not harsh. It is direct, it is exposing, but it's not harsh. What does he do? He just, first of all, states their ignorance. You don't know what you're asking. I know you think you know what you're asking for, but you don't know what you're asking for. You want to share in my crown. But what you don't understand is that the kingdom is going to come through a cross. This is something that none of the disciples had a clear grasp on. The relationship between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the gap of time that will exist between the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory He will know in His kingdom. They didn't understand that at all. They didn't see that gap So they're thinking about some kind of immediate glory. 
not understanding that the road to Christ's glory will pass through the horrors of Christ's suffering. You don't know what you're asking for. But then he does something else. He just states their ignorance. Then he probes their understanding. Ask them a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, right away, what is he testing? He's testing humility, isn't he? Are you able to to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Speaking, of course, of of his suffering, the, the difficulties he's entering into. You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink this cup? And right away, if the Lord has told you that you don't know what you're talking about, maybe the the, the right answer to the question would immediately be, apparently we aren't, right? I mean, we must not be able, because you just told us we don't know what we're asking for. But they don't even pick up on the clues. You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to do this? Yes, we are. We are able. Their heart likely is though it is terribly misguided at the moment, there's an element of something proper there because what they're giving voice to is their loyalty to Jesus. What they're giving voice to is their willingness to follow Him wherever He would go. We saw that in the Gospel of John this morning. Peter says this in Matthew 26, 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. The Bible says all the disciples said the same. Peter was dead wrong. He would deny Jesus three times, faster than he ever dreamed that he would. But he also meant it when he said, I'm willing to die for you. He just didn't understand his own weakness. And so it is with us. We overestimate ourselves. We don't understand our need for Christ. We don't understand our our dependency upon the Lord. So he states their ignorance. He probes their understanding. And then he just corrects their misunderstanding. Verse 23, my cup you shall drink. You're going to... Walk with me through what I go through. You're going to experience your own measure of suffering. But to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. What do we see here? We see the submission on the part of Christ that belongs to the incarnation. And it's on display in the Son of God's deferring to the Father's sovereign choice. So that the greatest leader you'll ever meet was completely submissive to his father's will. We tend to think about leadership as casting off someone else's authority. Now I'm in charge. But here you see the perfect Son of God, God in human flesh. By virtue of the incarnation, by virtue of his mission, that he's on as he's on the earth, as he speaks these words. He is completely submissive to His Father's will. It's not mine to give you. It has been sovereignly chosen who will have the various roles within the kingdom. I've said it before, I'll say it again. No one should ever be given a position of authority if they haven't demonstrated they know how to be under authority because they will abuse authority. It is humble people who exercise authority properly. Proud people... Their authority will be oppressive, smothering. It's not life-giving. And so the Lord of life demonstrates His 
perfect wisdom in the way that He guides His men as He corrects their ignorant confidence. Third thing we see, verse 24, judgment from indignant competitors. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. I wonder if they ever thought, why didn't we do that? I mean, what are they mad about? Well, they've determined that this is wrong. This is not right. I'm sure they would have praised themselves and said, we would have never done anything like that. But I think it's highly likely that what you're seeing in these men is more about jealousy than holiness. Not really motivated by holy anger. Why do I say that? Because they go on debating who the greatest is going to be all the way to the Last Supper. They're not free from these same ambitions. So their indignation is not because, hey, we ought to all be humble and not care about such things. No. It's more about their method than about their motivation that makes these men angry. D.A. Carson had a comment that I thought was just profound. He said this, if these verses scarcely support egalitarianism, here's what he means by this. He explains himself. Choice positions, after all, will be allotted. There will be choice positions allotted by the Lord. Everyone will not have the same role in the kingdom. It's not going to be one great kingdom that's egalitarian in nature. If these verses scarcely support egalitarianism, choice positions, after all, will be allotted. They demonstrate that interest in egalitarianism may mask a jealousy whose deepest wellsprings are not concerned for justice, but enlightened self-interest. That is, show me someone who doesn't understand that the Lord has a right to make distinctions among His disciples, and I'll show you someone who's probably not being motivated by humility, but by jealousy. And what really fuels their jealousy is an enlightened sense of, this isn't going to be good for me. And so... These ten are ready to judge these two brothers. But they're really heaping judgment upon themselves because they're characterized by the very same motivation. Which is why our Lord does what He does in verses 25 through 28. He calls them all together. Let's talk about this. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. What has Jesus just done? He has set forth now the pathway for greatness. You men say that you want prominence. You say you want to be great. You say you want the seats of honor. Well, let me tell you how to be great. God's way. In His estimation. What does He say? First of all, He says, this is not the way, the way of the great ones in our world. It is not the way of great men in the world you're living in. That's not the way. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, 
and their great men exercise authority over them. What does he mean when he says they lord it over them? I don't think he has in mind here, in this context, I don't think he's talking about some sort of purposeful oppression. I don't think that's what he has in mind. In fact, I think that first statement is really parallel to the second. It's just a way of expressing the fact that they rule. They actually exercise authority. They have dominion. They have rule that's been given to them. That's what he's saying. But he says, this must not be your mindset. Who is the leader? Who's at the head of the list? Who gets to exercise authority? This is a great test of all of us, dear ones. Listen, when you think about whatever authority you have in whatever realm it exists in your life, can you be honest with yourself? Do you think about your rights? Or do you think about your responsibilities? Are you more upset because someone doesn't give you what you think you have as a right due to your position? Or do you find yourself grieved because of how you have fallen short in the realm of your responsibilities? And is it in your heart to serve those whom you've been given authority over? Do you have the mind of a ruler? Even where you're meant to rule. The elders are to rule the church. But is your mindset that of a Gentile ruler or like your Lord? You know what he's doing in these verses? This is amazing. Jesus is offering himself as the model, isn't he? When you get down to verse 28, just as the Son of Man. And he goes on to describe what he's come to do. This is what your mindset is to be. My mindset. What you see in me. What you've witnessed in me. This is the way of true greatness. Not the ways of the great men of the earth. In fact, it's the way of the slave. Verse 26, it's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. The way to kingdom greatness is not ruling, it's serving. It's not to be like the great ones, it's to be like the lowly ones. Cannot be stressed enough that what our God loves in His lowly creatures, what He loves in His people, is a humble heart. Isn't this what we learned in the Beatitudes? Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not prestige, not worldly gain, righteousness. That's what you hunger for. If that's what you hunger for, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, our Lord just set forth in those Beatitudes 
a set of marching orders that is in complete contrast with anything this world would ever believe in. Blessed are the self-confident. Blessed are the ones who are always happy. Blessed are the strong. Blessed are those who've decided they're going to achieve great things in this world. Blessed are those who aren't soft. It comes to the feelings of others. On and on and on we could go. Just the opposite. Absolutely. What Jesus says is absolutely counterintuitive. The way up is down. The way high is low. Will you embrace the lowly place? Will you embrace the identity of a slave? As I said, then in verse 28, what does He do? He gives us Himself. One of the way of greatness, it's found in the greatest one who has ever stepped foot on this earth. And it's found when you look at the greatest act of service that has ever been offered. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Everything about this statement from Jesus points to the great example that He is. Refers to Himself as the Son of Man. That's a Messianic title. The one who is serving is the Messiah. The one who is serving is the Son of Man who is the Son of God. The one who spoke the worlds into existence as we sang about this morning is the one who came from heaven to earth and took to Himself the form of a bondservant. Do you see who's serving? The greatest one who's ever been. You feel offended because somebody doesn't recognize your greatness? The Bible says He came. He came. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. Well, why did you come then, Jesus? And in what sense did you come? Both in the sense of the incarnation. He comes from heaven into the world. He talks about that more than once. He's the bread that came down from heaven. But He also came in the sense as the one promised by the Father. This is the one who fulfills everything the Old Testament promised regarding our Redeemer. This is the one who served. The one whom John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. But he comes to me for baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. That one. He's your model. The one who came not to be served, though he's worthy to be served. If there was anyone worthy to be served, it was Jesus. But he didn't come to be served, but to serve. He assumed, and by the way, that's the word doulah. He assumed the place of the slave. And this is what some of you learned about recently in Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing. Do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And He did all of that to give His life. Didn't come to be served, verse 28, but to serve and to give His life. This is the supreme act of service. No greater love has any man than this than that he lay down his life for his friend. 
You are my friends, Jesus said. He came to give his life, to die as a ransom. And there's debate. How should we understand this word, this particular Greek word translated ransom in this context? Is he talking about an atoning offering? Is he talking about an act of deliverance? The answer is yes. His death atoned for our sins and his death delivered us from the wrath of God. And nothing less would have ever secured us except the blood of Jesus. Now complain to him that you aren't being served properly. Complain to him that you aren't being respected properly. We can't, can we? We can't. And so what does he do? He corrects his disciple. He sets forth the course for his disciples and he holds himself up as the way forward, as the model. You don't learn how to live a life that pleases God from the world around you. You learn how to live a life that pleases God from the one who gave you life, from your Savior. That's how you learn to live a life that pleases God. So I finish tonight by asking you, as I asked you this morning, do you know Him? Do you know Him? Is there anybody hearing me in this room? You are like Judas. You have been in the presence of genuine salvation. You have heard the words of genuine salvation. You can repeat the words of genuine salvation. You claim you belong to the realm of genuine salvation. But everything about your life screams pride. Lostness. Do you know Him? If you know Him, have you wandered? It's not just Peter, is it? Who deals with pride. So do James and John. So, the, so do the ten indignant disciples. So do I. So do you. So have we strayed in recent days from what we learned when the Lord saved us? Didn't He reduce us when He saved us? Didn't He produce in us that poverty of spirit that says, I'm a beggar. I deserve nothing. But the wrath of God in Jesus is offered to me. Life is offered to me. Can you remember when God reduced you? Are you still reduced? In your own mind, in your own heart, in your own attitudes. Will you embrace His example? Will you believe God about greatness? Why are you here? Why are you on this planet? Why is there breath in your lungs? Why will you be here another day? What's your purpose? Don't you understand it's not going to be found out there. It's going to be found right here. Which is to say right here. This is where you're going to discover why you exist and know how to live in a way that honors the God who has rescued your soul by the blood, by the ransom payment of His Son. If you're grateful for the Lord Jesus tonight, would you say amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank You for Your grace to us, Your mercy to us, Your kindness to us in our Savior, Your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank You that in Him we have all our answers. In Him is found not only our deliverance, but our way forward. And may we 
find where we have departed from our first love. And may we go right back to that place where we were reduced and saw ourselves rightly. And may we right there serve Jesus, serve the Son of God afresh and anew, the One who came not to be served but to serve. May we live in the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. You have given us a right mind, O Lord. Strengthen us to stay there. We ask You for this in Jesus' name. Amen.